Good morning, everybody. This has been a process of a lot of firsts for me. Uh, last week was my first unrestricted church service as a pastor here at New Life Church, and now preaching for the first time to a bunch of unmasked people, which is really good. Um, so if you hate something I'm saying, just scowl, and I'll notice and come find you after, and we can talk about it. It's great. <laughs> that wasn't meant to come across like a threat. I realize now it probably did. <laughs> I like reading people's faces while I'm preaching. It helps me understand, I mean this, it helps me understand if things are making sense, if points are connecting. And so to be able to preach to unmasked people is a blessing. I'm very excited for it, very happy to be able to do it. And honestly, this was just a week um, where I was very grateful, again, that um, many of you give to the church so that I can get paid to do a job like this. Um, I walked out of the house one day this morning and I said to Demaris, you know, I'm preaching on this text and I just... I don't know, I, I don't feel like there's too much here besides the obvious. Um, and for any of you who have ever taken time to study a passage, you would have immediately seen the folly in what I was saying. Um, so I, I got here and I sat down and I kind of started my process of studying and realized so quickly um, that if I wasn't going to see stuff in this text, it was my fault and not the Bible's. So it was a week where I was reminded that God's word is deep and worth studying. Um, and it's a privilege to get to, to walk with all of you through the things that I was learning in it this week. So to give a little bit of context as we jump back in, we're actually jumping ahead a little bit from where Rusty was at last week. A couple of reasons for that. Um, first one being that he didn't want the young guy to preach the passages on marriage and divorce. I'm very grateful for him for making that decision. Um, but also because the story we see here, where Jesus deals with um, his disciples desiring greatness, uh, is actually a bit of a pattern that we see. And so there's an earlier story that we're going to touch on today. And I thought that of those two within these chapters, this one really makes the point in the clearest way about what Jesus wants his disciples to learn about true greatness. So we're coming to the end of a section in the book of Mark here. It starts in chapter 8, verse 31, and it ends right at the beginning of chapter 11, which we're coming up on. And in this section, Jesus prophesies his death to his disciples three times as they head up to the city of Jerusalem. And that leads up to the triumphal entry, right? This day that we celebrate on Palm Sunday when the people of Jerusalem receive Jesus with joy, not realizing that they would be the same ones calling for him to be crucified just a few days later. This morning we'll be focusing on verses 35 through 45, but I had Daryl read those extra ones, 32 through 34, because we need to understand where we're coming from. As has been mentioned from the stage before, those little section headings in your Bible, they aren't in the original text. People have added that to try to make it easier to navigate. Um, and I don't think this was a good one. The, these sections are divided with a section heading, 32 to 34, and then 35 on. They're the same interaction. This all happens in one moment, and that's important to see as we look at these verses. Because Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And the response by two of these disciples is to turn to him and ask for positions of power, which is not a response that makes a lot of sense to us. So we're going to jump in. We're going to kind of look at the text in three different sections, the first one being verses 35 through 37, which I will just quickly read to refresh our memories. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Okay, so these two disciples, 
should know a little bit about them. It, it helps put some of this in perspective. James and John are these brothers who managed to earn themselves the nickname from Jesus, Sons of Thunder. They were brash. They were bold. They were evidently quite aggressive. And I think the story in which this comes through the clearest, uh, I believe it's from the book of Luke, uh, Jesus and his disciples go into a Samaritan village. The Samaritans reject them, drive them out. And James and John's response is to go to Jesus and say, can we call down fire, please? Can we destroy the village? To which Jesus, of course, rebukes them. But these are the men who we're dealing with. They are bold. They will say whatever they want to say. It's also worth noting that these are Jesus' cousins. Um, and actually, in Matthew's account of this same story in Matthew chapter 20, not only do they approach Jesus, they actually bring Jesus' aunt, their mom, with them to ask this question, which is really funny. Um, but I, I think what we see is people trying to use family ties to get what they want. They're, they're trying to leverage this relationship they have as a way to be given more prominence, more authority amongst the disciples. But I think we should also be reminded, especially in the fact that they brought their mom with them, that the disciples are likely were much younger than we generally conceive of them. From what we can see in the Bible and, and from what we know of Jewish tradition surrounding uh, following teachers, they would be somewhere in the range of 13 to 30. John likely was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He could be 13, 14, 15, 16. These guys are likely teenagers. And that kind of helps frame some of this as well. They're, they're kids. They're kids following their teacher and trying to understand this earth-shattering message that he is bringing with him. So they come with this question. Do for us whatever we ask. It's a bit of a sly approach. I don't know, I, I've, I've had children say this to me before. Maybe some of you have, have had adults do it. Someone comes up and says, promise me something. Well, well, what? Well, you have to promise first, then I'll tell you. That, that's what they're trying to do. They're essentially trying to trap Jesus, get him to agree to something before he even understands what he's agreeing to. So it's sly, uh, and it's also, obviously, a terribly wrong approach to Jesus. Now, now I'll be honest, I, I feel a bit of a tension in, in this specific verse, and it's because um, you know, a pastor that I have a lot of respect for in speaking of this verse, he, he writes, the genuine spirit of a Christian is not to ask that something should be done for him, but to ask his master what he could do for him. Now, there's some merit in this statement. It's not completely wrong, but I don't think it's completely right either, because we see throughout Scripture that God delights in answering the requests of his children. We turn to John chapter 15, an interaction that would happen a little bit later um, in this relationship between Jesus and his disciples, and he says to them, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But we also see a balancing perspective in the book of James, which actually this is worth noting. Uh, the guy who wrote this book, not, not the same James that we're talking about here. Um, so a different James, Jesus' half-brother actually here, writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So, so this is the tension. I think we can resolve it by saying that we can 
approach God and ask for big things. But the key is our motivation, right? We need to be checking our hearts as we approach him with these requests. I think this is a good reminder, especially as we head into a week where we are trying to commit a day as a church to prayer. True Christian prayer is prayer that seeks that God's glory would be shown and known. It's not prayer that desires self-advancement. Christian prayer is about aligning our will with God's, not about trying to bend his will towards ours. We, we wouldn't want a God who is moldable by our prayers. We, we're not good at praying. I think we're all pretty aware of that. We don't know how to pray as we ought. So our prayer is more about aligning ourselves with him than it is about changing him to think the same way that we are thinking about things. Anyways, that's not the main point of this text, just something to note. So then we look at Jesus' reply. What do you want me to do for you? Simple question. He's not foolish. He's not going to commit himself before they've actually made the request. He's not going to fall for the promise me before I ask you. But he's also gentle, right? I mean, we can be pretty certain that Jesus knows the question these disciples are about to ask him, but he hears them out. He sees the teaching moment and he lets it happen instead of just stopping the nonsense right now, cutting them down and saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to do this for you. Here's them out. And their request is that he, in his glory, would let them sit at his left and at his right side. Places of prominence, the ultimate places of prominence beside, besides the, the future king of the universe. Um, but we've we got to remember where we're coming from, right? Jesus just said to them, I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to die. And James and John walk up to him and go, can we be really important, please? Can you give us places of prominence? No encouragement, no support. This teacher literally just said, yeah, I'm going to go to the city. They're, they're going to take me, flog me, spit on me, beat me, kill me. And they're like, okay, but what about us? How, how do we get more important? How do we find greatness? It's not the moment. It's not the question. And it's also not the first time the disciples have done this. Like I said, we're in this section in Mark where Jesus prophesies about his death a few times. And just one chapter back, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 35, hear how similar this story sounds. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, but after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. It's what they were doing. <laughs> These disciples had shown a pattern that when Jesus spoke of his death, they either saw it as a route to greatness or completely ignored what he was saying in order to try to find prominence for themselves. But, but again, I, I actually think there's a bit of a tension in the question that's being asked because everything in me wants to immediately condemn what's being done here. And I think that's likely the response that a lot of you feel in yourselves as well as we look at these verses. The problem is the disciples are not completely off base. And, and let me show you what I mean. In, in Matthew chapter 19 which, again, Matthew's account of the story is Matthew chapter 20. So we can assume that what we're going to read now happened before this interaction between James and John and Jesus. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, 
at the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So a throne is actually a promise to the disciples. They, they are asking for a little more than Jesus has promised, but they are also acting in faith on what he already has promised, which is this place of rule. So uh, I think a helpful quote is from the, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. He's helpful in me working through this. He writes, Much was wrong about this request, and most have often heard that view. So I will call our attention to what was right about it. These disciples showed their faith that this same Jesus who was to be mocked, flogged, spit on, and killed would yet reign. And I think it was wonderful faith that after they had heard from his own lips in sorrowful detail the description of how he would die, yet nevertheless they so fully believed in his kingdom that they asked to have a share in its honors. They were ambitious, but their ambition was to be near the Savior. So we can commend the faith of these disciples. A death is prophesied, but they see the glory that is coming, and they want to be with Jesus. But we can also question their motives and their desires. And I think a question that isn't present here in the text, but is one that's maybe worth asking ourselves, and maybe they should have been asking themselves, is the question, is Jesus enough? One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, the psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I think that's the question that maybe was underneath what James and John are doing here. Did they want to follow Jesus or did they want what Jesus was going to give them? Did they want to follow the suffering servant, or did they just want to follow the glorious king? And it's the same question that confronts us every day. Would we still desire to be followers of Christ if all of the benefits were stripped away? Are we willing to follow him just because he is king? Just because what he says is true? just because in him are the words of eternal life? Or do we want the stuff that comes with it? It's an important question. And it's one that entirely defines our relationship with God, and potentially even if there is a relationship with God. I think that was below what they were asking. They wanted more. They didn't just want Jesus. But again, it's not Mark's main points. It's not even really in the text, but I, I think we just see this mindset in them. But we'll continue with verses 38 through 41. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Okay, so coming out of this absurd request, we see Jesus' response, once again one of gentleness. Could have ended this all right here. Rebuked the two, moved on. He would have been right to do it. 
but it was a teaching moment. So he was gentle with these disciples as they continued to fail to understand his mission. Then he asked them a question, which essentially is, are you prepared to suffer with me? Both of these images he uses, the cup and this baptism, are images of suffering. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the cup used as a picture of wrath being poured out on people. Here's one example. Psalm 75, 8, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. So this picture of wrath, and in Jesus' case, this is serious, because the wrath that will be poured on on him is not the wrath of man, but the wrath of God. The wrath for sin that all humanity has ever committed is poured out on Jesus. He's asking his disciples, can you take this suffering? And they wouldn't even be offered wrath nearly as large as he was. The wrath of God is completely removed from those who put their faith in Jesus, but they still deal with the wrath of humanity. Furthermore, he uses the picture of baptism, which, right, we have in mind someone being baptized to signify um, their faith in Christ. But there's, there's more in this image, um, in part because water throughout the Old Testament is, is a sign of, of chaos and death, but also because Jesus speaks of his death as a baptism. John chapter 12, verse 50, But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. So the cup is wrath and the baptism is death. And the question is, disciples, is can you bear this with me? Can you do what I'm going to do? I think that this principle is shown really well in the book of Romans. Chapter 8, Paul writes, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So Paul's point in Romans and Jesus' point to his disciples is if you want to reign with me, you've got to suffer first. Suffering for the Christian is not exceptional, it's expected. It's par for the course. It's actually a promise. It's going to be something that Christians face, which I think it's worth hearkening back. Is Jesus enough in the midst of suffering? Do we need comfort or do we need our Savior? And James and John I don't know quite what to do with their response, I'll be honest. They just exclaim, we can. We can do it. We we can do what you're asking of us. And I think there's two ways this could go. They, I think, likely are showing overconfidence and an underestimation of what it actually is that is coming. But there may also be some true faith in this statement. Because ultimately, both would. They would drink the cup. They would be baptized with the baptism. James, quite quickly, not that long actually after this interaction. Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. He was faithful to the end. He drank the cup. He was baptized with the baptism. John, on the other hand, actually was the only of Jesus' disciples to die peacefully. But he lived a life of persecution Church history, which can have some legend to it, church history states that John was actually thrown into a bat of boiling oil and survived miraculously before ultimately being exiled to the island of Patmos. He died in old age, but he lived life persecuted because of his faithfulness to Jesus. So regardless of how we want to read their response, whether we think it's faith or overconfidence, what we can see here is that the Spirit of God does amazing things to human beings. 
He can transform their wills. Because these two men, who were self-serving, who wanted glory, ultimately paid the price of death for the sake of Christ. They went from being self-seeking to self-sacrificial for the sake of the gospel. And actually, this suffering that they would face, uh, Jesus guarantees for them here in his response. And I find his response a little funny, because James and John come up and they're like, hey, we want to be prominent. And Jesus goes, okay, uh, can you suffer with me? They're like, yeah, we can do it. He's like, great, you are going to suffer. Glad you said you can do it. Also, can't actually give you those seats of prominence. Sorry. Um, so they kind of trap themselves a little bit. But, but that's what we see here, is that Jesus essentially guarantees it to them. Hey, you say you can do it. Well, you're going to. You're going to drink that cup. You're going to face that baptism. And then we come across the weirdest sentence in this whole passage, where Jesus says that those seats at his left and right are not his to grant, but they belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Um, this would become a much longer sermon if I intended to break down a lot of the intricacies in that statement, so I'm not going to. If you're super interested, you can come and talk to me after. I'd love to talk through that with some of you. Um, but to just summarize, I will draw from someone much smarter than me, read his quote on that sentence, and we will move on. Uh, John Calvin, the reformer, wrote, By this reply, Christ surrenders nothing, but only states that the Father had not assigned to him the office of appointing to each person his own peculiar peculiar place in the kingdom of heaven. He came indeed in order to bring all his people to eternal life. But we ought to reckon it enough that the inheritance obtained by his blood awaits us. As to the degree in which some men rise above others, it is not our business to inquire. And God did not intend that it should be revealed to us by Christ, but that it should be reserved till the the last revelation. Okay, and then we hit the response of the other 10 disciples. They become indignant. Now again, there's a couple of ways that we can read this. It's not super clear. It's possible, possible, that they were upset with these two because they were ignoring Jesus' teaching on humility. Um, I'd be willing to bet, and so pretty much were all of the commentators that I looked at, uh, that they were not upset because Jesus' teaching was being ignored. The other 10 were likely upset because they hadn't asked first. I think what we see with Jesus' disciples is pretty much a constant struggle against what they wanted, you know, wanting to be prominent human beings, knowing that they're with this teacher who was changing the world and and kind of wanting the power that would be associated with that. They were always sort of missing the point. And so I, I think, again, that's probably what we're dealing with here is that they were mad that maybe because James and John had asked first that, that they might get it, but if one of them had asked first, maybe the spot would have been for them. But what we see in this and really all throughout the Gospels, as Jesus' disciples fail to understand, we see God's grace. Because man, if we don't see ourselves in these disciples, I think we're kind of deceiving ourselves. We're so slow to understand. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are, we're, we're, we're going the right way and we're perfectly following God. And then in his grace, he corrects us in time and he shows us the ways that we are pursuing our own glory and he gets us back heading the right way. But it's all grace. And I'm really grateful for the example of the disciples who show us that even the ones who walked in the footsteps of Christ physically, he was gracious with, and we can be sure he will do the same for us. In verses 42 through 45, this is the the key teaching, Mark's entire point in telling this story. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to, ser to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see in Jesus' teaching a contrasting of how he expects his followers to be with worldly leadership. He obviously would have had in mind Rome, right? What they were seeing at that time. But I, I think it's kind of a, a truth across all human history. Um, leadership doesn't change. Power corrupts people because we're sinful, right? Worldly, worldly, worldly rulers use their authority to domineer. They use it to gain more power, to accumulate more wealth, to use the people under them so they can do less work and gain more out of it. That's just the reality of living in a broken world. Our leadership is broken. And Jesus' response to this broken style of leadership is strong, right? Four words in English, not so with you. This isn't how it's going to be. This is not how my people are going to be leaders, Jesus says. And then he offers to them a totally countercultural, totally counterintuitive way of leadership. Do you want to be great? It's the question he asks. Be a servant. If you want to rise above, you want to lead people, serve them. Get on your hands and knees. Do the dirty work. And then, as so often the Bible does with these types of teaching, you can kind of see maybe this moment where the disciples are like, okay, that doesn't sound too bad. Like, I can... I can be a servant. It's this Greek word, uh, diakonai. It's the same word used to, to describe church deacons, people who just serve in, in various ways in the church. You know, that, that sounds okay. You know, they're, they're feeling pretty good. And then Jesus just escalates it to the next level and goes, actually, if you want to be first, you have to be a slave. Different word, Greek word doulos, the exact same word that Paul uses at the start of all of his letters when he describes himself as a servant or slave of Christ. This is someone whose will is completely subservient to the will of the person that they are serving. They don't make their own decisions. They do what their master tells them to do. That's what Paul means when he uses the word to describe his relationship with Christ. It's what Jesus means when he's using the word here to describe how leaders in his kingdom are supposed to be with those who are under their authority. And then, again, an escalation. Because, you know, maybe now they're like, okay, like, you know, I could, I could be a slave of some people, you know, serving some people is easy. You know, serving my wife, she's wonderful. She's easy to serve. It's easy. But like, oh, that other person? Like, no. And then Jesus says, no, no, no. Slave of all. Everybody. All of them. Even the ones who seem like they might be difficult. That, that's it. Slave of all. It's strong. He's strong in his language. And then, again, to, to continue his build, if the disciples are kind of being like, man, like how, how can he expect this of us? Like, this is, this is impossible. He goes, for even, he's relating it to, to what he is going to do. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He grounds it in his own behavior. He says, you need to be like the Son of Man. You need to be willing to do what I am willing to do. Now that title, Son of Man, a few months back when I preached, I focused on it a little bit. Um, I think it's worth actually looking at this passage from Daniel again where Jesus draws this title from. You've got to hear the description. So this title, Son of Man, Jesus pulls from a vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7. 
Jesus attributes the title to himself, but, but hear how Daniel talks about this character. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and, the, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Power, authority, sovereign rule over everything. You think Jesus is using that title on purpose right now? The disciples would know. They'd hear son of man, they would think of this vision, and he would say, for even the son of man, the one who has ultimate authority, he didn't come to be served, but to serve people. His point, really, is, is that no human is higher than the Son of Man. So it leaves believers no excuse, no way to get around this commandment that Jesus lives out personally. And again, I think Paul summarizes these ideas really well. We see in Philippians chapter 2, which I'd be willing to bet, since I've gotten here, is the passage you have heard most from the stage between Rusty and Mai's preaching. Just There's so much depth in these verses. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. In your relationship with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay, so let's have one. It's the suffering of Jesus, but look what Paul does. Therefore, so because of what I've said, because Jesus humbled himself and suffered. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus' road to exaltation went through servanthood, suffering, death. And the expectation then should be that the followers will follow the footsteps of their master. That if followers desire to be great, desire to be leaders, that they would suffer just as Jesus did in order to end up in the position that he did. And then as he comes to the end of this section of teaching, he drops a bombshell, which for us, it feels pretty standard because we've heard it before. For the disciples, uh, this is a crazy thing, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a clear statement about the purpose of Jesus' death. It was a death of substitution to take the place of the people who deserved to die. And so we get a glimpse of the message of the gospel here. You know, I think either if you've been in church for a long time or this is your first time here, that word gospel can feel a little foreign. We don't always define it really well. So I want to do that. I want to define gospel. It's important here. It's going to be important a little bit later. So, so what is the gospel? What is this message that Jesus is alluding to? The message of the gospel is that God created the universe and everything in it. That he created mankind to be in unbroken relationship with him. But mankind, rather than being content with their position, being made in the image of God, they instead wanted to be like God. They wanted to be gods themselves. And so Adam and Eve, our first parents, in a pursuit of being like God, they sinned. They offended the glory of God. And as he warned them, the wages of sin would be death. But he didn't kill them immediately. In fact, 
Both of them, as far as we know, lived out an, well, an unnaturally long lifespan, but natural lifespans. They died naturally. And then human history continued on, and people obviously died for various reasons, some from old age, some from the effects of other people's sin, disease, whatever. But then Jesus came, and Jesus perfectly kept every command of God, essentially to undo the failure of Adam and Eve to do the same thing. And he went to the cross to take on himself the death that was promised. So all the wrath of God for sin poured out on Christ, and he died to pay the penalty of death for everybody else who deserves to die. That by people putting their faith in him, he takes their sin on himself. And more than just taking their sin and requiring perfection from them after the fact, he puts his own righteousness on those same people so that they would have right relationship with God by no merit of their own. More than that, he's coming again one day to take those with him who have put their faith to be with him forever in eternal pleasure in the presence of God. It's the message of the gospel. That's the most important message that any of us could ever hear or share. It is life. In those words are the words of life. It's through faith in Christ that we are saved, that we are made right with God. Let's go back to the text, just make some observations of this this teaching here. First of all, uh, I want to correct a misapplication I've heard pulled out of this text before. I've seen people read these verses and then go, well, if this is the way Jesus is talking about authority, then clearly there should be no authority structures where Christians are involved. You know, everything, everyone should be seen as equal. There should be no submission, no listening to other people, just completely equal. It's not what Jesus is trying to do here. In fact, it's so clear in other parts of Scripture that God establishes authority structures in the family, within the church. He builds them into these structures. So what Jesus is condemning here is not authority. He's condemning authority misused. He's condemning authority that uses itself to trample others and elevate self. He's condemning leaders who don't serve the ones that they are leading. We also need to realize that Jesus is actually, weirdly enough, not condemning pursuing greatness and leadership, which you would kind of think he's doing. But the question he asks, or the, 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 the teaching he offers, is that if you want to be great, you have to be a servant which maybe our sensibilities would say, he'd say, well, you shouldn't want to be great and you should serve people, but that's not what he says. So pursuing these positions actually isn't the thing Jesus is condemning. And we see similar language. You know, Paul talks about people who want to be um, overseers, which overseers, elders, pastors, they're interchangeable words in the New Testament. And he writes, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. It's okay to desire to be in these positions. Jesus is condemning getting there by wrong means or wanting to get there so that you can do wrong things. True Christian leadership is shaped by a desire to serve those who are being led. You know, it's, it's a willingness to be their slave. And I think I saw in my time at Bible school the greatest example of servant leadership that I will ever see. Uh, the president of our Bible college um, just consistently blew our minds because he was a busy man. He was, you know, in conversations at other Bible schools, he was doing some teaching, managing a now three-campus Bible college. And yet, it wouldn't be rare to glance into the kitchen after a meal and see him doing the dishes. 
for to see him just taking time, stopping during his day and just chatting with students about life, seeing how they were doing. You know, he would, he would come and make announcements in chapel and offer himself as a resource for people who were struggling. He showed this level of leadership, even though by his position, we might have assumed that he didn't have to do any of that. Another observation from this text is that this is not just the standard for Christian leaders. Yes, right here, Jesus is teaching his disciples, the men who would be the earliest leaders of the church, the 12, well, the 11 apostles, Judas being gone, but we are all being conformed to the image of Christ, not just those who aspire to leadership, but, but all of us as Christians. So the standard given here applies to you as well, even if you're not trying to put yourself in a position of leadership. And I, I hope that I don't need to make that point directly from texts, but I'm going to do it anyways because uh, there's this really interesting phrase that actually shows up in four straight of Paul's letters in the New Testament, and I think it's one worth paying attention to. Ephesians chapter 4, we read, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And Philippians 1.27, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And then 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So this idea of being a servant or a slave to all is not just reserved for Christian leaders. It's part of us living lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And to clarify, not in any way to earn that calling, right? Never to earn our salvation, but as a response of gratefulness. Or better yet, as a response to what has been done for us. Seeing Christ as a servant and responding in the same way by being servant to others. Final observation. I think the two stories bordering this moment of teaching actually really drive, point, drive home Jesus' point. So right before this, we run into the story of the rich young ruler. Right away, that checks some boxes, right? Uh, he's rich, got a lot of money, got a lot of power. He's a ruler. He can sway public opinion. He helps form how things happen. You would think this guy checks the boxes, for who someone who is essentially starting a new world religion would want as part of his entourage, right? Someone who can fund the efforts, who can make government leaders maybe more open to hearing about it. But yet when this man approaches Jesus, Jesus' response isn't just to bring him in with open arms. He says, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to give up one of your symbols of power. Give up all your money, get rid of it all, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And the man can't do it. And we know Jesus knew his heart. He knew full well that by, by putting that demand in front of the man, he wasn't going to be able to do it. So he drove away the man of power and prominence, the one who very possibly had, had abused his leadership. But then, in the story right after Jesus' teaching here, in the, from Mark 10, 45 here, to, or 46 to the end of the chapter, then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples Together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard 
that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. Exact same question he asked James and John. A little bit different in the Greek, identical in English. What do you want me to do for you? James and John's response, give us places of power. Bartimaeus' response, Rabbi, I want to see. Which, all throughout Mark, is as much a symbol of spiritual sight as it is physical. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So Jesus drives away the man who had that power, that prominence, who we can maybe assume had a bad track record of using his leadership. And instead he heals and calls to himself the man of no prominence, who would understand that his gratefulness to Jesus would result in him serving other people. As I wrap up this morning, I want to propose something. I want to propose that when we don't live in this way, when this style of, of not only leadership, but also life that Jesus has called his followers to, when we don't live that way, it shows that we either don't understand or don't believe the gospel. Now, let me show you what I mean by that because that's a pretty big statement. I'll give you two examples. Two things as I thought this week, you know, what are, what are things that maybe prevent us from serving people as we ought to? Example number one, how often we think that tasks are beneath us, beneath our status or our position or whatever, right? Whether it's, why well, I'm not going to do that. I'm the parent. Or, no, 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 I'm the boss. You know, someone else can empty the trash bins. Whatever that looks like, right? When, when we respond by actually thinking that we ourselves are above any task, any action for the sake of others. Well, see, the gospel shows us that Jesus did something infinitely beneath his position, the God of the universe, put on human skin. That's kind of humiliating for him. He, he took the form of his creation. Furthermore, lived on earth, suffered, bled, died to redeem a people who didn't deserve it. That's below his position. That's core to the message of the gospel. Second example, Another thing that I think we sometimes do is that we are happy to serve, but we decide those who are worthy of our service, right? Oh, this I like this person. They're easy to serve. I can do that. But eh, this other one, no, you know, they don't, you know, they did this to me that one time. They don't deserve that. I, I shouldn't have to act like they're slave. They, they did such and such to me this other time. The gospel shows us, you know, every person that Jesus died for wasn't worthy of his blood. To respond rightly to the gospel is to give as willingly as Christ gave for our sake. So why frame it like this? You know, I, I could have just thrown those out of two, two applications, move on. But it's because the last thing I want to do today is send you home going, man, I need to try harder. You know, I, I need to strive harder at this. In my own strength, I need to do everything I can to be a better person, to serve better, and it won't work. It won't. By our own strength, we will never, ever ever be able to do this. The worst thing I could send you home today is just with more legalistic and moralistic tasks that you're trying to do to make God like you more. What I am calling you to do today is to understand the gospel in a fuller way, 
to see what Jesus has done for you and to live your life as a response to what he has done. That way we can look at people and see that maybe in our minds they aren't worthy of our service. But I promise you we were not worthy of Christ's. Church, we are not called by Christ in order to live for ourselves. It's not about self-advancement. We are called by him to love God and love others, to respond with gratitude to the gospel by being servants, slaves of all, as he has been the most unexpected servant for us. So I just want to close with his words, the very words of Christ from this passage. Whomever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have served us. We, as an unworthy people, who cannot pay back your service in any way, you came, you humiliated yourself, you suffered and died for our sake, that we could be made right with God, that his glory could be known in the world. Father, thank you that we can reflect on the work of your Son. Thank you that it is not by our own own efforts that we are saved, but solely by his. We pray now that as we take time to think about what he has done for us, that by your Spirit you would use that to spur us on to love and good works, so that we would love one another well, love you well, and that Christ's name would be made famous. People would see his beauty in the way that we act as a result of the truth of the gospel. Amen.